Hey everybody, welcome back. So today we're going to talk about GI foreign bodies. So you're going to hear lots of different names for this, right? Gastrointestinal foreign bodies, GI foreign bodies, uh, bowel obstructions, small intestinal obstructions. Pretty much it just means anything that a dog or cat ate that got stuck somewhere in the GI system. So the GI system, we're going to do a little bit of anatomy real quick. So we have the mouth, we have the esophagus, so that's going to be our food pipe that goes down into the stomach, which goes down into the small intestines, which are huge. So we call them small intestines, but they're really long. And then it can go into the colon or the large intestines, which are named because they're just really like big around, bigger than the small intestines. The small intestines are thin and the large intestines are much bigger around, but shorter than the small intestines are. So then out from the large intestines, that's where they then will defecate it out. So when we're talking about GI foreign bodies, it just means anything that the pet ate and then it got stuck. So this isn't usually things like, uh, you know, I'm not going to be talking about intussusceptions or masses or anything at this point. Right now we're specifically talking about GI foreign bodies. So this can be lots of different things. It could be toys, clothes, um, hair ties, Corn cobs, hair from the dog itself, trash, gorilla glue, coins, like so many different things that we've seen. And then there's also linear foreign bodies. A linear foreign body means it's stuck somewhere up in the upper GI system. So like cats are well known to have string that gets caught under their tongue. So that's from the oral area. So tongue, and then it goes all the way down their intestines. I had a cat the other day that had string from under the tongue all the way through the stomach, the small intestines, and out its rectum. So you can actually like see this, this tongue sticking out on the other side. So that's a linear foreign body because they, what happens is, is that they eat this string-like object and then their intestines just kind of like, they are supposed to move, it's called peristalsis, but their intestines want to move that foreign body out of the body. But it can't because it's stuck, right? So instead, those intestines just kind of like accordion in on themselves. And it makes it towards a, this giant ball of intestines because nothing can move. Those are usually the worst ones. But some of the things that you'll hear from owners like clinical signs are sometimes they'll have seen the object being eaten. That's always best case scenario because we know that it's in there. It might be that they're having vomiting. They're not wanting to eat. They can have abdominal pain from it because it's pretty painful when those things won't move. They can be dehydrated. And then they'll often, they'll actually tell you that they often have diarrhea, or sorry, that they have constipation, but they're actually having diarrhea. So the reason why is because one, sometimes people don't even notice that their dog's going out, going to the bathroom. But the other thing is they notice, when they do notice, they notice that they're straining to go to the bathroom and nothing is coming out. But it's really just that they have that urgency to have to go, but there's only little drops of, of diarrhea coming out, not that they're actually constipated. All right, how is this diagnosed? There are a couple of things. First, usually the physical exam. So on their physical exam, we're looking under the tongue, especially for cats, to see if there's any string that's caught under the tongue. We're also palpating their abdomens. We're pushing on their belly to see if there's any foreign bodies that we can feel. And for this, like really, we can most of the time do this for smaller, skinnier pets. 
uh, the ones that are a little more on the chunky side, we can't really feel very well because there's just too much other stuff in there. And then the next thing is we're going to look at x-rays. X-rays are great because sometimes we can see certain objects like uh, metal, rocks, things like that. But sometimes we can't. We have to do other types of x-rays as well. So things like our metal and our bones, they're really easy to see because they show up as bright white. They're really hard to miss. Versus things like socks, cloth, the stuffing from the bedding, those are actually really hard to be able to see because they look exactly like the small intestines do. So in those cases, sometimes we have to repeat x-rays later, or sometimes we have to do a barium series or an iohexol, ranagrapin, whatever you want to call it, series. But it just basically means putting a contrast into the dog. So we're almost like putting dye into the pet and then seeing where that dye goes throughout the small intestines to see if there is an obstruction or a blockage. With other things that we're looking for on x-rays, we're looking for things like gas patterns. So things like gas going up to a certain area and then just stopping. Or we're looking for really dilated intestines. We call it two populations of intestines, meaning that we have an small intestines that are really large, and then we have a small intestine that's really small. So we know that all that fluid is backing up behind all of that small, sorry, behind that object going up into the stomach. We also are going to do possibly a pneumocolagram. I know that's everybody's favorite. So pneumocolagram means that we're putting air up into the colon so that we can determine if that object is in the colon or if it's in the small intestines or stomach. Because sometimes it's really hard to tell. If it's in the colon, it's going to pass. Like 99% of the time, that object is going to pass and we don't have to worry about it. But if it's in the stomach or the small intestines, then we know that we have to talk to the owner about different things. But that's usually why we want it to be done. So we want to be able to see the whole colon so we know if there's that object is in there or not. We're also looking to see like if we can see the object, how large is it? Is it something that could potentially pass just on its own? And then also we're doing looking to see like is there fluid in that x-ray? So if it's really hazy and we really can't see anything, then there's probably fluid that's in there. And then lastly, potentially submitting that x-ray to a radiologist. When we talk to the owners about doing this, it's because the radiologist is the expert, right? This is their job. They went to extra schooling to be able to look at x-rays all day, every day, and see if there might be something that we can't see on there. Remember, we're a jack of all trades, but that doesn't mean usually that you're an expert in one thing. This is their expertise, is just looking at x-rays. So sometimes it's really helpful to send them out so that somebody else can give us an idea of whether they think there's an, an obstruction there or not. You can also look at ultrasound. So ultrasound is we're looking at the belly and we're looking for lots of different things. We're looking for the object itself. We're looking for a plication. So we're talking about those linear foreign bodies like in cats. You can actually see like this accordion in on itself in those in those ultrasounds. And when we see that, that's not good. We know that there's some sort of linear foreign body that's in there. We're also looking for free fluid that's in there because we want to see like, is there any um, thing that could be perforated? Because again, that makes this more a surgical thing, not a just wait and see type thing. Last thing is you can use CT. So our new CT machine in there, you can potentially use that. 
Um, that's definitely going to be kind of the last resort though, because if you already have your physical and you've done your x-rays and you've done your ultrasound, like let's say it's not a full obstruction, like rocks and stuff can sometimes make it to where nothing will move past there. Let's say it is like some little piece of plastic or something and only part of it is obstructed. So that whole intestines isn't like stopped. Stuff can move around it. Those can be really hard to see on an x-ray, on an ultrasound. And so sometimes doing a CT could potentially help with that because we can potentially see those objects. It's a lot more expensive of an option. So that's why we're trying to do the other two things or the other three things first. The most common areas that we see these obstructions are going to be usually the jejunum first. So real quick for our anatomy again. So we have the small intestines is broken up into three sections. So the first part, the one that's next to the stomach, is called the duodenum. The longest part is called the jejunum. And then the part that's next to our large intestines or our colon is going to be the ileum. So the jejunum is the largest part, and that is usually where we actually find most of our, our um, foreign bodies. Next most common is going to be the stomach. And then after that is the duodenum, so the part that's right next to the stomach. And then the ileum is the next one, which is next to the large intestines, and it's really tiny. And then lastly, in the colon. And most of the time, we don't see it in the colon because it's already passed. They haven't had any physical you know, clinical signs from it. It's already gone through, so we don't really have to worry about it. So like literally only about 66% of the time are you actually going to see it in the colon. Treatment options really depend on like the location of where the object is, the size of it. But in general, like the size of it matters for most things. So it depends on like what that thing is. If it's something that could have zinc or a um, lead in it, then that's something that we actually want to get out immediately. So even though it's a tiny like penny, it can still pass. But if we don't get it out immediately, it's going to make them very, very sick. So we do need to get those things out immediately. You can, for some things, induce emesis, so induce vomiting. And usually we have a cutoff on that. So if it's usually, for me, my cutoff is three hours. If it's been more than three hours, then I talk to the owners about the risks because there can be a lot of risks to that. Even for certain objects, there can be risks for making them vomit. So like we don't want to induce emesis on things like bones. If they ate bones, it's just going to dissolve on its own most of the time. Sometimes they'll pass into the small intestines, but that's pretty rare. But those bones are really sharp. And if we make that pet vomit, all of that sharp edges will just scratch up and potentially lacerate the esophagus. And we don't want that either. The esophagus is much harder to fix than it is for the stomach or the small intestines. So we can't make certain things vomit. Things also like skewers, can't do that because it would just skewer right through the um, stomach or the esophagus. So some things we're not going to make them vomit for. Other things though, like if it's been like a sock and it's been less than three hours, making them vomit, totally appropriate. And since so past that three hours, the problem becomes that that stuff from the stomach goes into the small intestines. And then when they attempt to make them vomit, it pulls the first part of that small intestines out into the stomach and it can rip the small intestines or rip the little sphincter that's between the stomach and the small intestines. Also not good. That's a much bigger deal for surgery than just going in, removing it from the stomach and the small intestines itself. 
if we find something that is that cannot be vomited up or not induce emesis for, then we're usually talking to them about a couple different options. One is if it looks okay, like it's something that's stuck, but it looks like it's small enough that it could potentially pass. We'll talk to them about doing like fluids and rechecking x-rays. Ideally, it's fluids in the hospital, IV fluids, and then rechecking those x-rays. But sometimes we can't do that. And sometimes it just has to be fluids you know, under the skin, making sure they don't eat anything, and then rechecking those x-rays 8 to 12 hours later to see if that has potentially passed. If it has, great. No, nothing else needs to be done. But if not, then we're talking about doing surgery. The big problems, though, with doing like fluids and rechecking x-rays is that one, that object may not pass, and now we've spent 12 hours in the hospital with it. Two, it might perforate. So depending on where it is, if it perforates, it means it ruptures that small intestines, opens it up, and then all that fluid starts leaking into the abdomen. If that's the case, we're usually seeing these guys really sick too. Like they just like, they feel terrible, but that's still a possibility. And then you could also just see a partial obstruction again. Like even though we've given them fluids, it's moved, it's become a partial obstruction, and now we can't really see it really well because it's not fully blocked. Some of the pros to that though is that it might save them money if they are able to do fluids, recheck x-rays. That means we don't have to go to surgery, right? So it could save money. It also is not as invasive. And the third big thing with this is that it actually will will have rehydrated the pet and made them ready to go to surgery by the time if we do have to go to surgery. The next common thing is going to be endoscopy. But that depends on where it is. So if this is in the esophagus or in the stomach, those are things that we can use endoscopy to get out. As soon as it passes the stomach, that's it. We cannot put that endoscopy or the camera that goes down their, their esophagus into their stomach. We cannot put that camera into the small intestines. It just physically will not go in there. So we, if it's in the small intestines, we're not going to be able to see it. And that can be somewhat detrimental because like, let's say we get out the object that they thought that they've swallowed, a baby sock. Baby socks are easy to grab. They can come out really easily. But if there's a baby sock further down in the small intestines and we don't know about it, we can't see that. There's also the problem of like things could be too big for us to be able to grab. We Our instruments are small. That camera is really small. So sometimes like big rocks and stuff can be really difficult to be able to get out. Other problems can be like if there's... Um, of something that we try to get out and we can't. So like, let's say we have like a rock, we're trying to get it out and we can't and it gets stuck in the esophagus. Then now we have a bigger problem. Now we have something stuck that's in the esophagus. And then that one of the other nice things though, is that usually after they've woken up from anesthesia from the endoscopy, that's usually it. They don't have to be in the hospital for a very long time. They can usually go home after that. The next big thing is going to be surgery. So for surgery, there are lots of complications that can potentially happen with this, but there's lots of pros as well. When we go into surgery, we can see the entire stomach and small intestines. So we can look to see if there's any other foreign objects that are in there. We can look for other things as well, like masses that could be in the stomach or in the small intestines or in the spleen or the liver. We can look for those things. We can also... Um, see if there's like a problem with the small intestines. So sometimes like even if something has passed, like let's say a rock was stuck in the small intestines, it becomes really bruised in that area. 
and then it can potentially pass, but that small intestine still doesn't look good. And there's a chance that it could potentially still perforate and open up. And we can't see that unless we like physically look at the intestines. Like I have no idea what those intestines look like until we like, I have it in my hands, essentially. Some of the cons of surgery are it can be pretty invasive. So, you know, I have to cut into the belly. We have to cut into the stomach. If it's in the stomach, it's called a gastrotomy. If it's in the intestines, it's called an enterotomy. And almost never are we going to cut into the colon. So you don't have to worry about that. Like I said, it's in the colon, it's going to pass. We don't want to cut into the colon. And then other big things is it may be that it becomes a negative exploratory. So it could be that we saw the x-ray and we're like, it looks like a foreign body. The dog's vomiting profusely. This is what it looks like. We send it to the radiologist. The radiologist says, looks like a foreign body. Go into surgery. We get into surgery and there's no foreign body that's in there. So that happens. You know, unfortunately, it doesn't happen as often now as it did a long time ago, but it is a possibility. And if that's the case, then there's still other good things that we're finding from that. We're knowing that there's not a foreign body. Again, we can look at all the other things to look to see is, is there an interception? Is there a mass that's in there? Do we can take biopsies from or samples of tissue from the different parts of the stomach and small intestines to see if there's a problem that's in there. So still lots of good things can come from that. The other big thing that might happen while we're doing surgery is like I said, we don't know what that intestines looks like. It could be that we look at it and there's a piece that's dead. If that piece is dead, sometimes we have to remove that dead piece and then we have to put two good pieces back together. That's called an RNA or a resection and anastomosis. Resecting is taking out, anastomosis is putting two pieces back together. The biggest complication from that is that when we put them back together is that it may actually dehiss, so it might actually come apart. It usually happens about three to five days after the surgery. So when we're doing dismissals, this is a really important thing to talk about for our RNAs. Usually the doctor will talk about it, but a lot of times it's right after the surgery and they just have forgotten about what they what we even said. So if you see that a dog or cat had an RNA, you should mention to them, you know, there is a chance three to five days afterwards that this could come apart. It has nothing to do with the way the surgery was done or the way that the sutures that we used or how we sutured them. It is because that dog or cat's own body is rejecting itself. So we still need to watch to make sure, I usually tell people for a week afterwards, to make sure that there's no other vomiting, abdominal pain, they're still eating. We shouldn't see that. You know, we shouldn't see those things. If we do, bring them in immediately because I worry about that incision dehissing. It's pretty uncommon when that does happen. It's only about a 5% chance that it will happen, but it's still a chance. It was still something that we need to talk to them about because it's a pretty big deal when it does. So let's talk about some of the complications of these things. So inducing emesis, making the dog vomit, that could actually lead them to having aspiration pneumonia. So they vomit and then they inhale it. And then we potentially could have an aspiration pneumonia from that. So all that bacteria from that vomit goes in their lungs and creates the pneumonia. For the fluids and rechecking x-rays, we kind of talked about some of those, but you know, intestines, they might perforate and we wouldn't know it until we go to recheck those x-rays or they become really sick because we've waited a long period of time. Eight to 12 hours is a long period of time. 
It could be that they've wasted money, sort of. So I usually tell people, like, you, you can think of it as a waste of money because we could have just gone to surgery that whole time. But the good thing is, is that we've put them on fluids and they're already ready to go for surgery. So they're, we've already stabilized them so that they're going to have a better outcome during surgery. Because if they're unstable, we do not want to go to surgery. That patient will die on the table. So we want to try to make them as stable as possible before going into surgery. Endoscopy, the big thing there is you can actually cause scarring. And it's not because of the camera itself, but because of the fact that you're pulling out some of these objects that are scraping along the esophagus. Now, did they have that scraping and scarring beforehand? Possibly, because it had to go down that way, right? But we can get strictures, which just basically means the esophagus becomes much smaller in one area and harder for things to come down. You can get perforation. So if we try to grab, let's say, a skewer, and we attempt to pull it out through the through the esophagus. I've had like an instance where an internist was trying to pull it out. Somebody bumped the table and it skewered right through the esophagus. That's a risk. You know, that's a risk. That's a possibility that could potentially happen. Surgery, our big things are infection. So infection of the site in the abdomen. So like, let's say something happens. We, our instruments are not sterile or something like they've had like a problem with like sterility things or who knows? Somebody didn't, didn't, you know, had it on the, had the incision out on their skin. Who knows what could happen? But you can have infection from that. You can have dehiscence. So again, where that incision pulls apart, you can have that technically during any part of, of the surgery. So like, let's say you do a gastrotomy that could, so just in the stomach that could pull apart. If you do an enterotomy, it's just one little incision into the intestines that could pull apart and dehiss. When that happens, all of that fluid is leaking out into the abdomen. It can cause really bad peritonitis, meaning all of the organs and everything in the belly are really inflamed. And that makes them not want to, to eat or move. It's really painful. They can have sepsis because all that bacteria is now spilt out into that belly and it makes them septic, which then they absorb into their bloodstream. You could potentially have to go back into surgery when that happens. So you have to go back in to fix the dehiscence and hope that the next one actually holds. You can have ileus and adhesions. So ileus means that the intestines do not want to move. They just are like kind of stuck, just paralyzed because they are just in so much pain. Adhesions is where scar tissue forms. So you can get scarring between each one of the intestines. And it almost can make it to where like a normal intestine is kind of like it's really freely floating in the belly. But when it's adhesed or it has these scar tissue, it makes it like a hairpin turn. And things cannot pass really easily when that happens. I've even had one that it just created a giant ball of intestines afterwards. There was no way that we could like even get all of those scarring away from each other because it was just so bad. You can also get infection of the incision site itself on the belly. Most of the time, 99% of the time, that's because the pet licked at that incision, not usually because of something that we did. So I used to tell people like, make sure you keep the e-collar on or their cone of shame because let's say they, they're they like, well, I watch my dog 24 hours a day and it doesn't lick. Well, you have to sleep. You have to go to the bathroom. Dogs and cats are very smart and they're going to lick at it when you aren't looking. 
because they know that when the person is licking, sorry, looking at them, they're going to get yelled at. But if nobody's looking at them, they don't get yelled at and then they can lick at it. So they got to keep that e-collar on, especially when they're not literally in front of them watching them. Now let's talk about some of the outcomes of this. Most of them are really uncomplicated. Most of them you see go home in the morning or the next day. It's usually very, you know, very quick turnaround. As soon as they're eating for dogs, they can usually go home. It's a very excellent prognosis. For cats, ideally we want them to eat, but if not, then I'll usually still send them home as long as they're comfortable on pain medication because a lot of them are just so nervous to eat in the hospital, they're just not going to. But let's say it's a lot more complicated. Let's say we had to do that RNA or the resection and anastomosis where you take out that bad piece of tissue. Well, if it's like that, then there may have already been some underlying problem. Maybe we had a perforation and now we have a lots of fluid in the belly. We have to put a drain in it to make sure that all of that gets drained out and to see if any more bacteria is in there. It might be that you know they were already really sickly to begin with and they need to be hospitalized for longer periods of time. So there are unfortunately cases to where they end up staying a really long time in the hospital, or there are cases where we have to put them to sleep on the table. So those are usually when they have multiple perforations, which is usually from linear foreign bodies, so string-like objects. But those ones, if there's multiple perforations in that intestines, sometimes we just we have to we would have to take out the entire intestines. That's just not possible. If you try to take everything out, that's they can't live like that. You can take out about two-thirds of their intestines, of their small intestines. But even then, it could create something called a short bowel syndrome, which is where they're, they cannot absorb enough nutrients from their intestines, and then they just have constant diarrhea all the time. So ideally, we don't want to do that if possible. We're usually trying to, to talk to the owners about like if it's that bad, then it's probably something that we should put them to sleep. We don't really want them to have to suffer like that because they're they just get really skinny. It's just not very good quality of life. All right. Some of the common questions you're going to get is going to be, one, can I give my dog or cat mineral oil like I do a horse and then it'll pass it through? That is, first of all, terrible for surgery. Like when I go in and I have seen somebody who's given mineral oil and I've opened up that area, mineral oil spills out everywhere. It is thick. It's viscous. It potentially could cause issues after surgery if I haven't like really packed off everything really well or if it's perforated and they did that it, and all that mineral oil is in the abdomen, it is not good. So I actually tell people, do not do that. The other thing is that when they're trying to give them this mineral oil, that hasn't moved, right? They've tried to give them the mineral oil now and now they vomited it up and then they inhale the mineral oil. And then it goes in their lungs. And now we have an even bigger problem because now we have mineral oil in the lungs that's going to potentially cause an infection and or really bad pneumonia that we can't get that mineral oil out. And we still have to go into surgery with this pet. It's not a good thing. We do not want to have them give mineral oil. Other questions are, can the surgery wait? So in some circumstances, yes, sometimes like I diagnose it at night, the owner says, can I wait till the morning? I just don't have the funds to do it here, but I know that I can get funds in the morning. Possibly. It depends on how sickly the pet is. If it's not that sick, they could potentially wait. I still go over the risks with them. You know, this could perforate. We, this could be a much worse surgery later on. 
And then also it could be that if they want to go to their regular vet, the regular vet may say, I'm already booked for the day. You can't bring it here. Go to the emergency. So they're right back where they were before. And then the next thing is going to be what if we don't have the funds for this? So still talking to them about care credit, scratch pay. I've had people apply for credit cards right there in the room and get credit cards and just pay it on the credit card. I've had people do GoFundMes and then get a bunch of money from like friends and family and then you pay them back with GoFundMe accounts. Talking to them about like other types of funding, the Humane Society, rescue organizations. But remember like if they call during the day and they're like, hey, how much is it for surgery or... You know, I think my dog ate a foreign body, but I don't think I can afford it. What should I do? Immediately talk to them about going to find all these resources right then and there. Because if they can't, if they come after 6 p.m., all of these you know, rescue organizations and things are closed. Nobody can get a hold of them after 6 p.m. So they can't get any of those funding. And then now we're stuck in this situation of like, what do we do until then? So other situations, they can potentially um, relinquish them to the Humane Society. You might have somebody who's like, I got you know $1,000 in care credit, but I can't even afford to pay that off. If that's the case, then it might be that they just need to relinquish them because the stock is going to do this again. It's not very often that you have a dog that or cat that eats something only once and they're not going to do it again. They're probably going to do it again. So unless somebody can be really diligent about making sure that they don't eat objects, the best next best case scenario is going to be that we potentially relinquish them to someone that can't deal with that. And then lastly, unfortunately, in some situations, we need to consider humane euthanasia, especially if the pet is really sickly and we know that they can't afford it. This is going to be not just like just the surgery. This is going to be surgery plus an extensive hospitalization, and we know it's going to happen again. So, you know, there are times when even a young dog, that if they're that sickly, that I am going to suggest humane euthanasia if they don't have the funds for that. Sometimes even if they do have the funds for it and I see how bad it is, I will still, that you know, humane euthanasia is still on the table as an option. All right. So if you guys have any questions, again, always grab me, text me, email me, questions, things you want me to go over. I'm happy to do any of those. And then... um also, the other thing is I was going to tell you my story really quickly. So this one's about my daughter. She has a loose tooth and this thing is like sticking out to the side. It is so loose. She will not let us pull this thing, right? And so she is very scientific and artistic. So we've like talked to her about like how it's going to hurt the dentin. We've talked to her about how it's going to hurt the adult tooth. We've talked to her about like it's going to potentially get stuck in there, you know? So like we've talked about all those things. And then we went to bribery. So we've bribed her with ice cream. We've bribed her with pizza. We've bribed her with a dollar. We've bribed her with $10. She will not let anybody pull this tooth out. We offered to get her a toy. Nothing. Will not do it. She will not let anybody pull this tooth out. That just shows you like how stubborn kids are sometimes. I even asked her like, what would it take to let you, to let us pull your tooth out? What, what do you want? Because, you know, my wife was joking that, you know, everybody has a price. Like, what is your price? I feel like for most kids, they're like, ice cream? Yeah. Pull my tooth out. But no, she is very stubborn. I've asked her again, like, what what is it that I could give you to pull your tooth out? And um, nothing. She says nothing. Nothing to pull her tooth out. So she might have this crooked tooth in her mouth for the rest of her life. The last one, the first one that she had, did not 
get pulled. She was like letting us wiggle it and stuff, but then she was playing with her brother and slammed her face on the ground. And that's how it came out. And I was like, well, this time it's not going to hurt because it's not going to be like slamming your face on the ground. It's going to be less painful than that. She still won't do it. So hopefully we'll have a tooth here sometime soon. Other funny thing is that she also likes it. She's very scientific. And so she asks questions about things that I wouldn't even have think thought to ask when I was little. So she's asked about like, how does the tooth fairy know that you lost a tooth? Okay, well, I researched this. It's because of a golden bell. There's a golden bell over the room that rings to tell the tooth fairy that you lost a tooth. She's like, well, if the doors are closed and the windows are closed and the alarm is on, how does the tooth fairy get in? It's like, hmm, we'll research this again. Okay, so it says that the tooth fairy has a magic door that she can enter under her little magic bell to be able to go in there. She's like, okay. Well, then how does the magic bell know that you lost a tooth? Oh my God, kid. <laughs> like, I love that she asks so many questions and wants to know why about everything. But sometimes you get to the things that you're just like, I just don't have an answer. I was like, I don't know. It's just magic. She's like, but there has to be an answer. And I'm like, you're right. I believe that too, but I don't have that answer. <laughs> so anyways, all right, that was my fun story. And again, always, guys, if you have questions or anything, please let me know. Have a good day.